2: This episode of Clear and Vivid with Ben Stiller is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery.
3: For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films... The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. If you're anything like me, the holidays bring another opportunity to serve an exciting dish of dry gray meat.
2: <laughs> well, Ellen, I think we've found a solution to your cooking woes.
3: Yeah, Food Network Kitchen is a new kind of cooking app that has thousands of live and on-demand cooking classes taught by our favorite Food Network stars cookbook authors and culinary experts, all from the comfort of our own kitchens. We can even ask the chefs questions during the live classes, questions like, how did my meat get gray like that?
2: You can also save and organize tons of recipes that have been vetted by expert chefs so you can plan your holiday all in one place. And better yet, you can get groceries delivered for every cooking class and every recipe.
3: Food Network Kitchen is like an extra set of hands in the kitchen. And who can't use an extra set of hands during the holidays?
2: Find Food Network Kitchen in the App Store. Download the app and sign up today. From
3: mystery and thrillers to comedy and drama, Acorn TV is your streaming destination for critically acclaimed series from Britain, Australia, Ireland, and beyond. Visit acorn.tv or download the Acorn TV app on your favorite device and use the code VIVID for an extended 30-day free trial. Acorn TV, world-class TV from Britain and beyond. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
4: The fun of directing for me is, you know, I know what my responsibilities are, and then I want the actors to then feel like they can really bring, you know, whatever it is they're going to bring and feel like they can have the opportunity to take the chances and to know that they don't have to worry about any of that other stuff.
3: That's Ben Stiller. Ben knows about movie making as an actor and a director and as a student of actor-comedians Ann Meera and Jerry Stiller, who were his mother and father. He most recently directed the seven-part series Escape at Mora for Showtime. It's his latest work in a career that's included more than 50 movies. Ben and I worked together on a couple of those pictures, so I was really happy when he agreed to visit our studio and compare notes with me about the delicate art of communicating director to actor, actor to director. And actor to actors. Ben, I'm so glad to have you here today. This Thanks. is really fun. I haven't we've made two movies together and have hardly seen each other I know, outside I know. of the
4: set. And uh I know. I'm so happy to see you too. That first movie,
3: Flirting with <laughs> Disaster, wasn't that fun?
4: <laughs> I am so proud to be a part of that movie. So am I. Yeah. I love that movie. I mean, it was quite an experience making it.
3: But you and I, I remember one scene, I think it was our first scene together. We started to we started to amuse each other with the way we were playing the scene, <laughs> and your your way of working was to go under, and when you went under, I went under you. Right. So right. we were as.
4: <laughs> I think I was probably, first of all, I was probably kind of in the same way that I remember when I first worked with um, with Robert De Niro and Meet the Parents. It's like you know you're working with somebody. For me, somebody who is, you know, in my consciousness, because I, you know, for watched you so much, um, that there's that moment of like, oh, okay, I'm with this person who I'm used to just watching... And now I'm interacting with them. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bit of it trying to be cool and trying to like.
3: Well, we were both trying to be cool. And the cooler we got, the more it amused us.
4: Yes. And then we yeah. got
3: in trouble with the director. That's right. Like we started to break each other up. <laughs> and I felt like we were getting in trouble for being funny.
4: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, then that, that, that's the best, I think, the, the best feeling when you're like, feel like you're connecting with an actor that's like that. That's the best thing. It's yeah. A,
3: that's what, that's, I think, one of the things that makes me want to do it. Yeah. Until I'm finished as a human.
4: You yeah. Know? No. And I think you know what's always interesting is that you know the other actor is going to give you something that you don't you don't know what it's going to be, and for me when we were doing that, I remember thinking, oh wow, he's like he's just so he your character was um, so much who you know who you were making that character like it was just such a clear sort of point of view for the character that. It was int- so interesting to me to kind of see what was going to come back, you know, from me That you.
3: thing of the, the ping pong ball going back and forth. Yeah. If you don't have that, if you're playing solo ping pong, it's not so interesting.
4: Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, actors will, I've been, I've worked with actors who are like that, who, you know, and it's they not They figure it out
3: the night before and come in and do it at you no matter how, what you give
4: them back. Right. And that it can be good, what they're doing. Yes, yeah, it can be wonderful. In fact,
3: I've, I've worked with people who were big stars and actually people who, whose performances I regarded as first class when I saw them on the screen. But in working with them, when I finally worked with them, I didn't have that back and forth thing and it wasn't as much fun.
4: Right, right. Because, yeah, because it was just what it was. Yeah. yeah and, and if uh, there was
3: any adjusting, you were going to do it.
4: Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the interesting thing with actors and working in different situations. You never know. I mean, also as a director, I'm sure you know that too. It's you know, you see that an actor auditions for something and you get what you got in the audition, maybe, and it was great in the audition, but then there's sometimes that's 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 it. it, You know, there there used
3: to be a problem when I was a kid. There were still there there were still radio dramas and uh, soap operas and that kind of thing, and actors who only worked on radio. Could pr- pretty much do one performance, really. So they, you know, they were used to getting the script, maybe running through it once, and then they're on the air, right? But you put them in a play where you have to rehearse it for six weeks and then do performance after performance. the The epithet was they were radio actors because they only they, right, they gave right. you the surface performance and had highs and lows and dynamics. But didn't have much under it yeah and it, they uh, never uh,
4: went deep right that's so interesting because I, I never experienced that and, and I wonder what what that process was like did you, And you never ever did that did you
3: I, I, I wrote and directed radio shows on my college stations so I had ex- some kind of amateur radio experience. Okay. but my father was an actor, you know right and he Robert, was, right? Robert Alden yeah. he was also in aside from the movies and the stage he was in radio. Right. So I was exposed to a lot of that, and I heard stories about that. I heard, oh, he's he's a radio actor.
4: Did you ever go and see, as a kid, go see him work?
3: Oh, all the time. Yeah. I stood in the wings and watched Guys and Dolls twice a week for two years. Wow. What about you? Your parents?
4: Were I mean, them. I grew up, yeah, I grew yeah. up around it, watching my parents do, well, they did, um, you know, they did a lot of different things. They did their nightclub act, so there was a lot of working at, you know, places like, you know— Reno and Las Vegas. So and you were there clubs. with them? Yeah.
3: As, how, how did you travel with them as a, as a little boy? Yeah,
4: my sister and I would go around with them. And then when we got older and it became you know time to go to school, we'd go in the summertime, we'd go with them. They used to do a lot of summer stock, though. They would go and do— Oh,
3: so they would, they would do— yeah, characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they would do,
4: and they would do, um, like they do uh, Neil Simon's *Prisoner* of Second Avenue, and they go to do it in you know Cape Cod at, at the Cape Cod Melody Tent, or they go to Dayton, Ohio, and do it at the Kenley Theater. These, you know, these places where you go and do it for a couple weeks. I was of weeks. an
3: apprentice at the Kenley Theater when I was sixteen.
4: Do you remember John Kenley?
3: I remember John Kenley <laughs> very well. We would be walking past a, a parking meter, and he'd throw his leg over it like a
4: ballet dancer. <laughs>
3: He was proud that he could do that. Yeah. He was about fifty or 60.
4: He was a very flamboyant guy, very flamboyant. interesting person. And and, and yeah. did
3: you hear his theory of acting? No. Shout and duck.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could I could uh, I could understand that having experienced worked him, worked in that theater. Yeah, right? and I, so we'd watch my parents do their uh, do like Prisoner, of Second Avenue, and my sister and I would memorize it. I'm sure that's the same way with you watching your dad do Guys and Dolls. So he was doing it on Broadway, right?
3: He originated the part of Sky That's Masterson. Incredible! Yeah, that is so. And one day crazy. I got a phone call while I was working part time as a clown in front of gas stations, trying to try to make a living really? while I was getting, waiting for acting work. And they say, "We just we you, you, your father Robert Alder. Yeah, you know you know the part of Sky Masterson because our leading man in this little theater in Illinois just got sick, and we opened in two days." And, and so the question is, do you know the part? And I look over at the paper bag with my clown suit in it, and I <laughs> and I say, do I know the part? <laughs> it was and you na- went in and you did it? It was a nightmare.
4: <laughs> oh, my God. I
3: did it. I was so nervous.
4: That must have been really interesting, because you probably just had it by osmosis, but yeah, you'd never done it.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah. I had to sing, and I was having trouble singing in tune in those days. What did you do? Did you have to work at different things? Did you start well, working right away?
4: I, um, well, I wanted to start working right away, but I didn't get a lot of work. I, you know, I was living at home on the Upper West Side. With uh, Probably as a teenager, I started, I, since I was like 10 or 11 years old, I knew I wanted to direct movies. I loved movies. Did you do any
3: directing as a kid?
4: I just, I made Super 8 movies. So did I. Yeah. Not really. Actually
3: with a wind up sixteen millimeter camera. Okay. Yeah.
4: yeah. In fact, I just my my parents had a house up in Nantucket, Massachusetts that um that we just sold and they had all these boxes of stuff and I actually just this weekend was going through some of these boxes and it had my old Super Eight editing. Oh, uh, that's great. You gotta keep all, uh, that on a shelf. Yeah, and my and my and and the Fuji camera that I had. Uh, and I had a Kodak uh, Super 8 sound camera too, so I I loved it, and I would just yeah I would make these little films with my sister and my friends on the block, and I knew that's I knew that that was what I really was interested. In. I had a, a subscription to American Cinematographer, and thought for a while I wanted to be a cinematographer.
3: Did you, um, did you edit your pictures yourself in the place? Yeah,
4: days? yeah. It cut, you know, you'd splice the film together with yeah. glue or yeah, tape. And 8-millimeter yeah. and film was so—it's like half as wide as 16-millimeter film.
3: Yeah, it's minuscule.
4: Yeah, so it would be, you know, gluing these little <laughs> pieces of film together. <laughs> but I, I tell, you know, my kids and stuff, and, you know, they look at me as sort of blank face, but like that the—you know, back in the day, it was, you know, you'd shoot the film— you know, it's like three-minute cartridge for Super Eight. Take it to wherever the camera store, or the drugstore, wherever, and send it away to Kodak up in Rochester, New York, and they they you know process it. Yeah, it would n- take three none days. None of that
3: is true now. Yeah, right? and
4: it's, then you wait for the film to come back. I know and it was be a so big exciting day when you see yeah. that,
3: that cartridge. Yeah, I know. And the uh, they see. I didn't have editing equipment, so I had to shoot the movie. In uh, I'd cut it in the camera in the camera. I'd right? one take and then I'd go on to the next take. And how so, old were you when you were doing? Eleven. This? Really? So we. What, had, was, what was the movie? Even? Well, the one I remember is we had a housekeeper and her husband. So I asked them if they would be in my movie, and
4: <laughs> my house <laughs> our housekeeper Hazel, who was also like our second mother, was in was got drafted into my films too. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so in my movie, they they're driving a car. And I pull up on a horse and hold them up with a gun.
4: Oh, wow. You had a horse?
3: Whatever made, I had a horse, but whatever made me think that a horse would outrun a car. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that sounds like an action movie, though. That sounds pretty involved.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't remember much but the holdup.
4: Right. That's great, though. See, what, was and, your,
3: what was your story?
4: Uh, They were murder stories because uh, I, <laughs> I was, you know, I so get. you went
3: all, right, all the they way were, to murder. They
4: were sort of death wish type stories because, you know, revenge stories. Because I was, I was a kid in the 70s and uh, on the Upper West Side and I would, you know, we get mugged and. You did yeah, get mugged? Yeah, not not violently, but what, like it was what, always.
3: What, what, what happened?
4: Well, I went to school on 110th in Amsterdam and lived on 84th Street. So sometimes kids would just sort of like, you know, come up and. They shake you down a little bit, and so I made these Super Eight movies where it'd be me and my friends getting mugged, and then we'd go, you know, and they'd like hit us or something, and then then we'd get up and we'd run into the park and find them and then murder them. <laughs> <laughs> wish fulfillment. Yeah, wish fulfillment. Yeah. yeah, and they had names like they called it Murder and Murder in the Park, and they so that, that was it the, yeah, I loved that. That was the theme. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: but it was. Uh, It was so much fun to make those movies. I already put my sister in them and uh, I did a takeoff on, or not takeoff, I did my version of Airport. Uh, I think I called it like airport seventy. They actually did airport seventy five because my dad is in airport seventy five Oh, no kidding, but I did airport seventy six or something where we had and I had a model airplane, and I stuck a bunch of matches in the cockpit and let it lit it on fire, and you know put it up against the sky and shot the camera <laughs> you know shot the the plane up against the sky. That's great. And yeah, I loved special effects and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah.
3: We had a pool that had no water in it, so I used the steps of the pool as the entrance to the sacred Inca Pyramid.
4: Ah, great. <laughs> That's great. But
3: when I got to the top of the steps, I didn't have a pyramid, so that was the end of that right. movie. It was <laughs> oh, a very short film.
4: You've directed a lot of movies. I've directed a number of movies, yeah, yeah.
3: The The one, the series, um, Escape at Danimore, is so so great I'm I'm so oh, happy thanks. for you that you did that
4: yeah I had a great time working on it you know and I think it was also for me finally um, getting a chance to direct well first of all not directing a comedy which I found was so much more enjoyable, really.
3: There's <laughs> no pressure. There's no pressure. Less, less pressure. Less
4: pressure. I mean, and, uh... In fact,
3: if they laugh, you're in trouble.
4: Right, exactly. Well, that's <laughs> that's the other side of it. Like, you know, are, are they going to take it seriously? Um, yeah,
3: because you have this reputation. Yeah. Did you find that was a problem?
4: Not at all. You know, that was it was an interesting thing. I, I was kind of concerned, like, well, are, are people, how are they going to look at this through what lens? But I found that, you know, people are into a story, they're into a story, and they're not thinking about who directed it
3: and what a story it was so well written and yeah. beautifully directed i saw a video of your the day where you did that traveling shot at Moore.
4: so we shot a, a number of days up there around the prison then we got into the real prison for a few days and shot uh, on the yard of the prison which i felt was you know really important
3: did it change your mind about the prison system or did you, did it confirm feelings you had what was your reaction after ha- having been actually there
4: it, it's so affecting to be in one of those places. I think the, the first thing that I got was that this is somewhere you don't want to be, yeah. right? And then to think, okay, even when we were shooting on our set, because we built a cell block set, because we had so many scenes in it, but it was a very self-contained set where it felt like we were sort of in our own, you know, actually felt like a real cell block. At the end of the day, I was so happy to be able to leave. the. You just never get away from it. So there's this constant, uh, uh, you know, oppression happening and, you know, close quarters interactions with people. You no, know, You know, violent or not, it's just human beings who you have to interact with every day for years and years and years in the place And like you that. had,
3: in, in Escape of Dannemora, you had a character who was sort of the, the ringmaster among the inmates. Yeah. The, which is probably not uncommon.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that was one of the aspects of the story that was really interesting to me was that— um, Richard Matt, who Benicio del Toro played, was sort of, you know, within the prison. He really operated as uh, someone who could, um, you know, tell people what to do. They were he was respected. He was feared. Um, but when he got released from prison, and when he escaped, you know, then his world sort of turned upside down because he didn't he didn't really understand how to uh, survive.
0: Without wow, that structure so around him. And
4: I think that's part of it was also because he was institutionalized his whole life, this character. Oh. You know, he really, from the time he was 10 or 11 years old, had been sent to, um, you know, juvenile facilities and had never really, you know, and then when he was out in the world, he was, his criminal instincts came out. So so when he got out, into when these two guys escaped, they, you know, they were on the run for uh, about 30 days and he couldn't really... Um, figure out how to
3: how do you get back how to make it work? Yeah, how do you get back in there? In, in a way, yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah. I think you know, and that's something we, we we played around with in the story. The the feeling of like when he was out, like maybe actually wanted to go right back in.
3: I'm interested in how you approach the question of how you relate in different ways. Right, in in Escape at Dannemora, you're telling a human story and the objective at least in part is for them to behave like people and get and get insight into the characters then when you're working with a a, a story that's more like sketch comedy right. where it's very important to get a laugh every few seconds and you have a, a different but similar problem of saying of communicating to somebody that's good but it could be funnier
4: right and right. that's hard yeah, it's a different perspective. I think it's a different sort of lens that you're looking at it through. That I, you know, look, I, most of my career up until doing uh, Danamora, I, you know, have been directing comedies, usually movies that I was in myself, also, uh, which is a whole other aspect to it. It's
3: better not to, isn't it?
4: I it felt so freeing not to, um, mm-hmm. and there are people who do it really well. Um, it's funny. I I just saw Jason Bateman recently, who's you know really great at acting and and directing himself, and you know he's really embraced that. Um, and he, and he said to me, uh, "Isn't it great? Because it it just takes out like sort of takes the middleman out." <laughs> I thought, well, that's a great way of looking at it. And I said to him, "I'm kind of like in the other place where like I don't want that responsibility anymore." Yeah. yeah. But you know, um, the older I
3: get, the less attention I
4: and you less... and you that's what you've done in your career. Also, right. All, yeah. all the films you directed, you started that's, too, and in, wrote. Yeah, right? And,
3: right. and that's three ways to fail.
4: And they <laughs> it's all, a lot of responsibilities. And right? they all—all all
3: the three ways interfere with one another. Want, and now, when I'm in a movie where somebody else is the director, I feel so good that he's going to worry about where, or she's going to worry about where the camera goes. Right, right. Where the cut goes. Yeah. And I just—and that think, for me,
4: that's that. That's I, I agree. Like that's, and that's the the fun of directing for me is, um. You know, I know what my responsibilities are, and then I want the actors to then feel like they can really bring, you know, whatever it is they're going to bring and feel like they can have the opportunity to take the chances and to know that they don't have to worry about any of that other stuff.
3: What do you do when they change the dialogue completely without asking if it's okay? (laughs)
4: Um, You know, I am not, for me, because usually, you know, it's not something that I've necessarily written myself or by myself or like obsessed on it but i do feel like sometimes there's a line of dialogue that if, if it's better i'm okay with it if it you know if it feels like yeah. oh that's that actually makes sense um, but you know sometimes there's a way that a line is written there's a rhythm there that the writer wrote for a specific reason to, for example noah bomback you know whose new movie you're so great in oh, um, thank you he writes a very specific sort of cadence with his dialogue. You know, that's what the movie is. It's like you're speaking this language that that um everybody is speaking and you know each character has their own voice but it's still part of a whole. And I so for me I'm okay with it and also I feel like it's just a take. And I always look at that as an actor too that it's just one take. Sort of taking the pressure off myself. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like, hey, this is not. I'm gonna try this. This is probably not gonna be in the movie. It's not the take they're gonna use. But let so let's go that way once, and it sort of then frees it up to be kind of like uh, almost like a rehearsal or something. But it happens to be being filmed.
3: Actual rehearsals though can be tricky. Ben and I get into that right after this short break.
2: They were a better chef.
3: I need help. I'm a desperate human being.
2: Well, Alan, I think we've found something for you.
3: You said it, Sarah. Introducing a new kind of cooking app called Food Network Kitchen. This app has live cooking classes every day and thousands of on demand cooking classes. You can cook along with your favorite Food Network stars, cookbook authors, and culinary experts. Right on a mobile or smart device from the comfort of your own kitchen. You can even get live support by asking the chef's questions during the live classes.
2: I know, I get overwhelmed by how many recipes are out there. Food Network Kitchen's recipes are vetted by expert chefs, and you can save and organize your favorites. So you can plan for the holidays all in one place. And better yet, with integrated grocery delivery, you can beat the holiday rush by ordering your ingredient list for any cooking class or any recipe. The Food Network Kitchen app really is like an extra set of hands in the kitchen.
3: I certainly need that.
2: So find Food Network Kitchen in the App Store. Download the app and sign up today. And if you need yet another reason to try it, your annual subscription provides up to 100 meals for kids living with hunger through a partnership with No Kid Hungry. For more information, go to turnup.org/meals. That's turnup t u r n u p.org/meals.
3: Escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Hailed as a glorious streaming service and essential must-have by the Hollywood Reporter, Acorn TV is your destination for addictive dramas, cozy mysteries, and classic Britcoms. Featuring TV's biggest stars like Sandra Oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Olivia Colman. Binge-watch a classic series like Midsummer Murders or Discover a New Favorite. Plus, you'll get buzzworthy originals you can't find anywhere else like Manhunt, Mystery Road, and the Emmy-nominated Queens of Mystery. Acorn TV is available on demand and commercial-free on all of your favorite devices. Visit acorn.tv and use the code Vivid for an extended 30-day free trial. Acorn TV, world-class TV from Britain and beyond.
2: Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Era's Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for
0: details. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
3: This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ben Stiller and the role of rehearsals in movie making. Do you get to rehearse? Did you rehearse Dan more much? Well, you know, first of all, the,
4: when there's so much to shoot on one of those limited series, we had it was a basically like almost an eight-hour story. So, for me, I had a, a, a there was a couple of weeks that we had for rehearsal, and what it became more about was sort of. You know, maybe reading a scene through once, discussing what was going on, talking about the characters, and really a discussion with the actors, you know? To talk about what they felt was going on with their character, where they're coming from, questions they had about the script. And kind of like knowing that, hey, we're going to be going into this thing where there's so much there to shoot. We're going to be—because I, I usually will uh, storyboard and plan out shots and— um, you know, videotape rehearsals and then figure out the angles Mm. before shooting. But again, with this thing, there was so much that it was kind of having to let go of a lot of that and just go, okay, we're going to get there on the day and... I know these two guys are in a cell, so it's gonna that's gonna <laughs> limit our possibilities for blocking um <laughs> which was kind of also a little bit comforting too. It's like I know that they're not necessarily gonna you know move around a lot um so we go into the cell and with the actors and, and and the actors had very specific ideas uh you know Benicio paul dano both you know really uh you know they, they they're very invested in their characters, which is great because they're coming from a point of view of their character. And I'm I'm really looking at it from some other perspective, which is the the whole in my mind how I I see so it. So Benicio would say, "I'm standing
3: over here. You have a problem with that?" <laughs> invested well, in his character,
4: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes and uh, so you know that 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 does lead you to the the strategy sometimes of saying like, "Hey, you know, I think you should stand over here." when you know that you really want them to stand over there. <laughs> so then he goes, well, I think I'm going to stand over there. I'm like, oh, all right, if you got it." <laughs> <laughs>
3: that's, that's what my uncle used to call reverse psychology.
4: Exactly. Right uh, but I think what it more, honestly, in reality, what it is more is I think an actor wants to feel like they have a chance to like I I I don't like it when I go we'll come onto a set and the director says okay you're here and then you're gonna go here because I got this great shot where I'm gonna see him in the background and you know I worked out this you know really cool angle, yeah. to me I immediately like you know bristle at that because I'm like, oh, wait, I don't, I don't want to, like, just be a part of his cool shot. I want i have a, you know, my, my motivation, and I know yeah, what I'm doing right. what I'm doing. Well,
3: th- there's, you know, the challenge of different impulses and different visions, and the yeah. director has the overall vision, but if he doesn't share it with you and take what you have to offer, he's shortchanging the picture, I think.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, the best directors that I've worked with allow— the actors to feel like they have a say in, you know, what they're doing and figuring it out for themselves, even if they have an idea in their head of what they think it should be. And maybe they are doing the reverse psychology trick on me and I don't even know (laughs) it, you know, or some version of it. But like, that's fine because I just want to feel like I'm coming to it in a way that, you know, makes it feel organic for me. Like I find blocking to be the most important aspect of working on a scene. Because as an actor, it can really throw you off if you're told to go somewhere or do something that doesn't feel organic.
3: That throws me off. And the other thing that throws me off is to go where I'm in, I feel an impulse to go in the first rehearsal. And after I do it a few times, I realize that's totally wrong.
4: And now I'm stuck with it. You're stuck with it, yeah. And I think you're right. Like you, Sometimes the second or third or fourth time, you go, wait a minute, this is the way it should be. And that, for me, is when the director should see that. And then be able to roll with that and go, yeah, you know what, you're right. Let's, you know, if we did the other angle, maybe we got to do that other angle again to fix that or whatever. But it's more important to just to get it right and to get it feeling yeah, right.
3: I, I have the feeling Brando felt that way completely because I've seen several of his movies. Where he doesn't match from one shot to the other. You know, there's a wide shot, and they come in for a tighter shot, and his hand is in a different part of his body. Right.
4: Know? Right. You know? Yeah. And and he probably was. I know he was doing that at a time when that probably was nobody was doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's still always going against the grain when you're making a movie, too, because I think there's all these people there that are have been making movies for their whole career, like if it's a sound guy or the first AD, and they're used to the. You know the sort of like ac- accepted sort of um, you know uh, structure of how you how you make a movie, and th- really there are no rules. There are no rules. You can do it any way you want. It sounds to me like you've been
3: experimental all your life, like the, <laughs> your great album Roadkill. <laughs> That oh, was wow. pretty experimental.
4: <laughs> I can't take credit for that. That was, we had a band leader, our, our Chris Roebling, who was my high school bandmate, who really was the guy leading us into the experimental land with that. So how old were you when you made that uh, album? F- uh, 15, 15, 16? Yeah. And, <laughs> and the
3: story I heard was your parents paid for the making of the album. I think
4: right? Chris's parents and my parents both paid for the studio time. And uh, we're supporting our creative impulses. And we were had no reason uh, to be in a studio. We did not know what we but were doing.
3: But you sound like a real drummer on that to me.
4: <laughs> I've gotten better since then. Do, that, you that, drum, that, do you drum all the time for fun? I In the last, like I'd say, seven or eight years, I picked it up again, started taking lessons again. And I really enjoy it. I love it. Yeah,
3: I had a friend in high school who was a drummer and I got him to teach me a little bit. So I, oh, really? I got as far as the paradiddle.
4: Yeah, the paradiddle. And yeah. then there's the double paradiddle and, oh, I know maybe uh, I can yeah. do it. I
3: might I think I do a double paradiddle by accident.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, the, yeah, those are all, all the rudiments, you know, and these rudiments are what you learn if you take lessons and they're the hardest to get like, you know, five stroke roll, seven stroke roll. Um and uh You know that that's the kind of boring stuff that you have to do if you're a kid. You have to practice, and you want to just be playing rock and roll beats. And so, basically, I didn't really spend much time on the rudiments and learned how to play rock beat. And
3: was it the same group that made the album that played at your bar mitzvah with you?
4: No, that was a different group. (laughs) You've been doing a lot of research. Um, Well, I love that the
3: thing. The thing I (laughs) love. The thing I love about that. I don't want
4: Alan Alda digging into my life. We faces, making <laughs> where, you where are we going with this? No, uh, th- it
3: just killed me that I, I heard you say once that your father didn't like the Beatles because he thought they were saying, hey, Jew.
4: That's right. He thought the song, hey, Jude, was hey, Jew. And <laughs> even when he was corrected, I think he still sort of took it like they they, they really meant that. <laughs> it's too close. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> like, well, why even get close? Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, that was just me and my friend, uh, Jonathan, who was, lived in my building playing bass, and we played that at at my bar mitzvah, and, you know, I think You it was,
3: played at your bar mitzvah, you played— We played Hey, hey, hey Jude. Hey Jude, yeah.
4: <laughs> We played Hey Jude. <laughs> oh, <laughs> And it wasn't it wasn't that great, uh, but we, but uh, yeah. So I just sort of like would play around. Then got into capital punishment was the name of of, of the band. How
3: did you arrive at that title?
4: Uh, you know, we were trying to be anarchic and kind of you know like you know be edgy. And uh, we thought, I mean, you know, a bunch of kids from the Upper West Side going but to you a were, private you school. You were a
3: bunch of smart kids. We were. I mean, the the people you the the the, the most amazing part of the story is you now already got together to make more music
4: well yeah so then about two or three years ago chris who lives in the city and uh was sort of the band leader uh we've stayed in touch and stayed friends over the years and then the other members of the band peter Zusi, is a uh professor of uh eastern european literature in england and peter swan who played bass is a uh, Chief Justice on the Arizona State Court of Appeals. And then Chris got everybody back together and said, hey, let's, you know, I, I, let's why don't we just record a few more songs? And so we went in the studio, <laughs> in this little studio in Brooklyn, and, you know, it was just fun because it had been so long. But I, I did feel I had actually gotten a little bit better as a drummer, because I really was not good back then. And now I felt I felt like I could actually play decent, you know, kind of like keep, keep time and kind of just, you know, play a basic rock beat pretty okay. So we went in and we did it again, and then we decided to do uh, a little mini concert. And we put out the message for Calhoun, which is the school, the high school I went to, all the kids we went to school with. And it became like a reunion. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it was fun. So it's like kids I hadn't seen in 30, you know, 35 years. So is
3: this coming out as an
4: album? Uh, No, it's not. (laughs) 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 Well, I guess it's coming. It's like there's a recording that I think you can get. I think you can get it on Spotify, actually. Really? You can. You can. (laughs) Yes. And there is a little mini documentary that... that, Of uh, the making of? Yeah, that Pitchfork uh, made with the music site. So that's actually a really cool little... 45-minute documentary about about oh, us getting I, back together. I got to look at that. Yeah, yeah. So that was really fun because I, I think, you know, to have a chance to reconnect and, you know, when you get to this point in your life when you have that much time between uh, an event and you go, you know, to think about how long ago that was and to have that connection today, you know, felt really, like I really appreciated that. <laughs> So we're running out
3: of time, but we at the end of our shows, we ask seven quick questions, and they're not right. embarrassing okay. questions. Don't worry about <laughs> it. You're okay with this, right? Bring it on. Right. First question: What do you wish you really understood?
4: How the economy works.
3: Because
4: mm. I'm really not good with that, and I, I try to understand it. I never got had any training. It's you know in economics at all and math i'm i'm math challenged i'm just not a math person so i'm really you know w- when people talk about the economy and, and what moves the economy and what changes the value of money you know i kind of understand it but i don't understand what really makes it happen
3: yeah sometimes i need for them to say and that's a bad thing Right. Before I, before I really know if it is or not.
4: Right. And, you know, really that idea of like what, you know, the base of like, you know, having a gold standard or what that means mm-hmm. and how, you know, I, I get it. Like there's a precious metal. But to me, the greater question of money is really interesting because we put such a value on it in our society. But the, what is it really?
3: Mm. That's why the song has the guy losing his soul, selling his soul. Right.
4: There you go. Yeah.
3: Next question. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong?
4: Uh, it depends who the person is. Uh, if they're coming at you with a like something that's not true, and telling you something that's not true. Yeah, I think it just depends on the person. I, I, I tr- you know, it's hard sometimes because you don't want to embarrass somebody if they're interviewing you. Oh, right. right, if they're right. right if they're you know saying I, I you know there's, so there's a story about you and they tell you some story that never happened. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want to go like, well, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, <laughs> and twinkly. then you can also sometimes sound like defensive like well, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, um,
3: right. It's hard either way.
4: Yeah. Uh, that's something you know, being direct with someone, that's a bigger question, like being able to be direct with people, mm. which I think is an important thing that sometimes could be hard.
3: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
4: Gosh. Um That's a good one. Uh
3: We ought to have music in here now. Oh, my
4: God. What's, I mean— It's Jeopardy what's, music do, you, do you know what the strangest—can uh, I send it do back I to you? Do I know what the strangest question no, like anybody what, ever asked like you what's is? what's a weird question, son?
3: I, I think the strangest question anybody ever asked you is the one I'm asking you Okay, about. then I'll take
4: that one. I mean, no, no, that's a great question.
3: Yeah. The strangest—you you asked me. The strangest question I ever got was from a six-year-old in a hotel restaurant, and he looked up at me for a long time, and he said, how did you get out of the TV— Okay, how do you stop a compulsive talker?
4: <laughs> it's it's hard to stop. I I, fi- I find that people who are compulsive talkers usually don't listen. Yeah. So it's you know you can stop them for a second, right? But they're really kind of just waiting for you to stop talking so they can start talking again. Usually, I find it really hard to interact with people like that because they have such a preconceived idea of whatever it is they're thinking. So they can be interesting, and I, I'm thinking of a couple of people I know who are like really, <laughs> yeah. like really, actually like very famous people. Uh, yes. Who are incredibly Were interesting people. on the verge people.
3: of hearing names now.
4: No, I'm not going to say any names, but <laughs> incredibly famous. <laughs> yes. And, um, and they and, won't stop. They won't stop talking, but and all,
3: always well, about themselves or about well, yeah, anything?
4: an exper- Yeah, but it's all interesting, and I I enjoy listening to it because they're telling you these stories that you go, oh my god, I can't believe it, you know this yeah. person is telling me that story, but they're not as interested in really hearing what you have to say. I've I've, found, I've been around people like that, and it's not like a, necessarily a bad thing because I find they'll be like that with almost anybody who's put in front of them.
3: If that kind of, when you get that feeling, it kind of diminishes your sense yes. of your
4: role in the whole <laughs> Exactly. The whole it's just, I'm just the human being that's in front of you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right. The next one. How do you like to start up a conversation with someone who you don't know at a party?
4: Wow. That's a tough one too, because I'm not good at that at all. Like a dinner party it's where just, you're sitting yeah. right next to them. I usually would probably say like, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. uh Probably introduce myself, right? And uh, does, it, does it tend to lag after that? <laughs> yeah, I am not good. Dinner parties stress me out. I'll yeah. say that. Cocktail like, parties stress me out. Yeah. Well, cocktail parties at least you can like move around to somebody else <laughs> yeah. if it's not happening, right? Yeah. You know, and and that's very awkward. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get away from Walk you. <laughs> away. I'm gonna. Or how can you do that without insulting the person? Like, you know, this is pretty good, but I'm gonna go see if there's something better. <laughs> That's basically what you, it is you can't do that at, at a dinner, dinner party do you you do? yeah, I find it so stressful, um, like we were at that birthday party, and that was a dinner party, and sitting across and it was like, you know, I feel like, oh, I have to be interesting, I have to you know it, yeah. more than you know worrying about what they're going to tell me. it's like how do i how am I interesting yeah. to you know who the whoever it is across from me?
3: Well, these are really interesting answers here's here's one I want to know what gives you confidence,
0: hmm.
3: Uh, do you have any? Yeah.
4: yeah. I think I you mean, do.
3: You certainly seem to.
4: Well, confidence. Uh, here's what I think, uh, for me, I think I probably was a lot more confident when I was younger mm. in that way that you can be when you're younger because you don't have that self-awareness of thinking, well, maybe I'm being a little too cocky, or maybe I think I know what I'm talking about, but I don't. You
3: remind me of a line Tolstoy uses a couple of times in War and Peace, and I noticed it because he used it more than once. He was young, and so he thought everyone loved him. Hmm. And that's a little like the confidence you're talking
4: about. Yeah, and I think that allows you to, and by the way, kudos to you for reading War and Peace, because I have never done that.
3: I had to read it in three days because I was up for a part in it. Really? I was eighteen. Oh my God! Yeah,
4: um, that's daunting. I um, anyway. I I for for me, yeah. I think I had this sort of confidence where, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do it this way, and I really thought I knew what I was doing, and that allowed me to take chances and do things I probably wouldn't have done. So,
3: how do you get confidence now? Now that you know more? Well, I'm gl- I'm thankful now that I have
4: a, a sense of that I don't know that much and because i feel like the 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 flip side of that is you can end up alienating a lot of people i think because you're kind of going you know with your confidence Uh. and now it's um you know to be honest like it's it's a combination of things because i think sometimes it's somebody tells you they liked something you did right that's you know very shallow yet Good way to get confidence, (laughs) right? If somebody says, "I thought that show was great," you know, and somebody you respect, like that, gives me confidence. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's an affirmation. Um, But ultimately, you know, what if I made uh, Danamora, and you know, you didn't think that about it, and nobody said they thought it was good? How would I feel? Would I still feel confident about it? And that I find more challenging. Uh, You know, I I find that it's harder. So finding that in yourself. I think when you do something that you know sort of inside feels good, feels right, that you're proud of, that you've worked hard on um that does give me confidence, but ultimately it's probably the more shallow outside <laughs> affirmations. <laughs> that's
3: that's very honest, but 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 you also get it from knowing that you
4: did it. Yeah. Well, finishing something. Yeah. Completing a task or or doing something that's Challenging, I think. Uh, you know, being able to uh, affect some sort of change within yourself, or uh, you know that that I think that does give you confidence to to know that you can complete a task and you can mm-hmm. do something and get it done. And you know that that's you know that comes from experience.
3: Experience. Yeah. Here's the last one. What book changed your life?
4: Um. Well I'm immediately I want to kind of go back you know to something that I read when I was younger, because I feel like that's where you get so affected by a, you know a book or a movie or something you see or uh, read uh, because it just that's when it can affect you and', and probably the most impressionable when you're the most impressionable. Um, I remember reading Kurt Vonnegut when I was a kid. Like, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Which one? Uh, Cat's Cradle. And how did that change you? I think because it was, I guess it was like, it was the first time that I was, like, experiencing a reality. Um, It was sort of like, this sort of, like, not necessarily real reality, but it was a, a world that was created and had all these ideas of, you know what could happen and it was just it was there was something so new about it to me that was like very very exciting it was so exciting to me that like this that that, i guess it was the first time i was experiencing a world on the page that wasn't my own world but yet related to it so i could so kind was that of fall like into it was like a
3: spur to your own imagination yeah
4: imagination like the excitement mm. of my imagination getting spurred and mm. um and then like you know slaughterhouse 5 or something like that and you know like because that did have that fantasy element of it. And, yeah. you know, those. I think that's one of the reasons why Kurt Vonnegut's books were so... Young people are you know, get so affected by them. Because also when you try to make a movie of a Kurt Vonnegut book, you can't really do it. Because it doesn't really translate, yeah. you know, that reality. Um, so it lives inside your head. and But it really that really affected me. Um, there was a short story... Can I give you another one? Yeah. yeah. There's a short story I read by E.B. White called The Second Tree from the Corner that... Um, was just a this little short story about a guy riding the bus home after going to his therapist. And I read it when I was about 14 or 15 and I hadn't gone to a therapist at that point, <laughs> but somehow I connected with it. Um, because the question of the story is, uh, the therapist asked him, what do you want? What do you want in life? And the guy couldn't answer the question.
3: So, did you take that question personally? Did you did you think, what do
4: I want? Well, it made me think about it. Yeah, because yeah. because the the idea of the short story is that he can't really quantify it, and the therapist says, "I know what I want. I want a new wing on my house, and I want to you know go away for the weekend there." Like he like sort of broke it down to, you know, some material thing, and and the protagonist of the story is basically goes, "I I don't really know what I want, but I know that it has something to do with." the feeling i get when i look at the second tree from the corner and you know in in uh, you know and it's it, nice. how it makes me feel and um you know that's what life is about you can't quantify it so that's how
3: you became a gardener exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's been great talking with you Ben. thank you too you. i really am glad you I'm could come in i'm happy to see you me too Bye-bye. bye 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 This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. If you haven't seen Escape at Mori yet, I really encourage you to watch that series. I think it's brilliant. And Ben Stiller's talent as a director really leaps out. The series is available now on Hulu. And you can sample the work of his youthful band, the one with the ear-catching name of Capital Punishment. You can find Capital Punishment's experimental post-punk album Roadkill on Spotify. To keep up with Ben, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Red Hour ben, @RedHourBen. And he's doing good work for worldwide refugees as a goodwill ambassador for the UNHCR. The UN Refugee Agency is a global organization dedicated to saving lives, protecting rights, and building a better future for refugees. You can find out more about his advocacy at unhcr.org. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Koston. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dr. Jamil Zaki, who has a novel workout regimen,
4: an empathy gym, yeah, I always think of my parents' divorce as an empathy gym for me, right? I mean, it, sort of, <laughs> it forced me to, almost really as a survival skill, to work at sort of connecting and reading people. Um, it's, it's, it was a high-stakes version of empathy training. And I think a lot of my work now, a lot of my life, is uh, surrounds the mission of creating empathy
3: gyms for other people. Find out how an empathy gym can help you communicate and connect Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.